treat your family and your friends and have faith. Treat the least person that you run into like they're the most important person. It's uh, easy to assume you're going to be successful. And you should always believe and be confident that you're going to be successful. But you should also be willing to do the hard work. Hello, and welcome to Audio Life. And today we have a great, great guest on board with us. And here we're getting ready to share his story. And here at Audio Life, what we do, we tell your story in your voice. So, John, without further ado, I'd just like to welcome you here. I hope your day is going well. We're delighted to have you here in Audio Life. And as I mentioned, your surname Marks has an incredibly unique spelling, and it's something intriguing. And so, right off the bat, when were you born? And is there a story behind your name? Yeah, I was born in Seattle, Washington in 1934. Uh, so I'm 88 years old. The origin of our name is uh, we are Flemish. We're Belgian. We, uh, my grandparents were born in Belgium, uh, immigrated to the United States, to Michigan, where they met and married. And my grandmother had a total of 13 children. Oh, wow. 13 children. A lot of great stories can be had with brothers and sisters, but perhaps you have something told to you by your parents or any heard any stories about your birth in particular? Um, I'm a little, little <laughs> quizzical on that one. Not about me necessarily. I'm the oldest of seven children. Six survived. Most of my brothers and sisters are alive today. One, one of my brothers passed away uh, four years ago. Well, that brings me on to something, you know, with the evocation of memory and things that we'll never forget, what was perhaps your earliest memory? Something that really was a strong memory for you in your childhood. I would start by um, just reciting a little bit about the family uh, migration, if you will. My dad was in Seattle. Uh, he uh, worked as a bread man. Uh, he had a desire to start his own business. We had a house. In Seattle, uh, he sold the house to save money to buy the business. We lived in an apartment for a while until we moved. We moved to a small town in Oregon where my dad bought the business for $3,000. That's all he could save. And he had put away money for my uh, college education starting uh, in uh, you know 1936, 37. And he had uh, $40 put away in a bank that he had promised would be for my education, and he would talk to me that way because, uh, you know, I was uh, always talking to him about his business, uh, who he did as a bread man, how he managed his truck and his customers. We moved to uh, the small town of Gresham, Oregon, which is now a suburb of Portland, but that in those days it was 12 miles uh, east of Portland on the this uh, near Mount Hood, and it was pretty much an agricultural community where they grew mainly uh, berries. When uh, I got to be about five years old, my family um, decided it was time to start school. There were no kindergartens in the public schools, and I wasn't uh, of age to go to public school because I was only five and a half years old. So my, um, my mom found a parochial school, a Catholic school in Portland, 
And uh, my dad had an arrangement with a local bus company because uh, my dad in business uh, knew the guy that owned the freight company. He also owned the bus company. So instead of having to pay 15 cents for the the ride to Portland, uh, my dad negotiated a 10 cent fare. So uh, 10 cents uh, was what I had uh, every morning, two dimes, get on the uh, bus at the corner uh, and ride with all the people going to work leaving the small town and going to Portland for, for their work. So I was five and a half years old. My mom took me the first day, and then after that, I was on my own. I stopped at uh, the corner where the uh, school was, and it was uh, three or four blocks away. And so I walked in the rain. You know, it rains every day in Portland, almost every day. And so I uh, walked to the school for um, the three blocks. I only missed my bus one time in my entire uh, six years in that school. My brother was about three or four years younger, and he started uh, school when uh, he was old enough. He was six. By this time, I was almost 10. He would get on the bus with me, and he wasn't quite responsible sometimes. (laughs) He would be late, and I'd be dragging him down the three blocks to this bus stop, make sure he got on. And if he was there at the bus stop, he would sometimes he'd try to he'd start a fight with the other kids. So I had to manage him. Eventually, after two years of this, my parents took me out of that school and let let my brother fend for himself by himself. So that's my earliest recall uh, memories of uh, being self sufficient. And what that did was that set me up for um, a lifetime of uh, travel and uh, self sufficiency. So that, that's the end of that little piece. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I mean, just the idea of, of you know, a little five-year-old kid getting a bus to Portland every day, uh, the pouring rain, I guess it teaches you to grow up quite quickly and probably set yourself up, as you said, for many of your future life events from that. You know, it's interesting. Your beliefs can be shaped, I guess, from experiences like that. And so I had to ask the following question. Who are the people who most influenced your beliefs, perhaps particularly at that young age? And as you develop, I feel that you got a very strong infrastructure and setup from your parents, you know, with that resiliency and being the eldest to work hard. But perhaps you could expand on that a little bit. I got my value system from my dad, uh, my mom, hard work, education. Basically, it's uh, family and Faith and friends are the uh, the credo I go by. That's amazing. And do you feel like your beliefs may have changed from when you were young? If you look back, do you see perhaps today you look at the world a little bit differently? Or do you feel they've been pretty firm throughout? No, I've, my standards, uh, my morals, my morality, my set of life tenets haven't changed. They were inculcated early and they remain firm. I love that. Perhaps then I could talk a little bit about your children who some of I've had the pleasure of meeting. What's the belief you would most want your children to share with you? My wife and I have four children. They're all hard workers. They all have a firm belief in family and support to family and almost everything. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I can vouch for that for Joe, at least. 
He's an incredible hard worker and I can see where he gets it from. So I want to take you back a little bit to some of those interactions that you had when you were at school. I mean, it's just fascinating. Were there other children that you would be friends with during that period coming from another city and coming across the town? Could you explain a little bit about a general day at your life there at school, what you got up to, perhaps what subjects you enjoyed studying or any kind of experience that really sticks out from that period of your life? I'm a little hazy on that one. Um, Those uh, fellows that were in school, those ladies in school, and then it was a small class. Uh, This was a small school with small class. Those people are pretty well moved away or uh, they've passed away. I would say um, in my first classroom, there were uh, three grades, first, second, and third grade. None of us went to kindergarten. We just went to school and uh, one row was the first grade, one row was the second grade, one row was the third grade. We had uh, a nun that taught us and she taught every every person based on what their skill level or intelligence level was. Fantastic. And in some ways, it's like streamlining the children. And, and if you've got the capacity to learn, they were happy to share with you that knowledge. How about as you develop into a teenager, what are some of the strongest memories you have from that period of your life? Yeah, I was always anxious to learn to drive, get the car, drive. That was a big deal. We had bakery trucks and we had uh, cars, family cars. And uh, as soon as I could drive 16, that was important because then I could drive a bakery truck and drive in my dad's business. So I can recall one um, one time I was probably 16. Uh, my dad said, uh, we're going to Chicago. And we're going to bring back three trucks. So these cu- trucks were specially outfitted to support the bakery and the uh, kind of delivery that we did, which was a house to house. We went to each house and had customers and we needed to have a special cut on the trucks uh, to make it efficient for delivery and for the customer to uh, see the goods. My dad and I flew to Chicago. We uh, met with uh, some consulting firms that had uh, devised this technique for the trucks and also had devised some other aspects of updating our um, our business model. We didn't call it a business model, but that's what it was. So uh, I was 16. I was learning my dad's business. We went to a small town near um, Chicago and got on the the trucks. I I drove one. My dad had one, and he towed one. Now we had to drive those trucks about 2,000 miles back to Oregon. There wasn't an interstate commerce, uh, interstate highway system yet. So you drove on roads uh, through towns uh, all the way across America. So I can remember rural Illinois, rural Iowa, rural Nebraska. Wyoming, then Idaho, and then finally into uh, Oregon. That was quite an adventure. And I can remember the last day getting so freaking tired because it was summertime and it was warm and I was drowsy after a dinner and uh, just trying to stay awake. And of course, the roads were sometimes gravel and sometimes paved, but I'd start to nod off. But somehow or other, I'd, I stayed with it and and we arrived back in Oregon. That's a, a teenage re- recollection. 
<laughs> oh, I absolutely love that story, John. It must have been challenging at that age, you know, to be driving these big vans and so on across, across town, as you mentioned, without these commercial interstates and so on, the different types of terrain, the roads, the long hours. It's some adventure for a kid that age, I'll tell you that. As a teenager, you like to drive, but then when you have to drive it for real for, you know, three days, that's a different thing. I would just correct you on that. The size of the truck, it's a panel truck. It's, uh, you know, a 2,000 pound uh, truck. It's not a, a, not a big van, not a lorry. Gotcha. But still, nonetheless impressive. Well, taking from that, I have to ask you, you know, you seem like a very industrious kid, you know, even into your teenage years, you're working really hard, you're driving, you know, long distances, long hours. Tell me a little bit about your personal teenage life, perhaps what hobbies you're interested in or any recollection or experiences with friends you had around that time. I had a health problem when I was in the eighth grade. Before the ninth grade, my mother decided I would go to a different school. I went to that one school for a year, and then uh, my health returned. I was still uh, rather small. Our family tends to grow later, and so I was uh, probably in the eighth grade. I was five foot two and ninety pounds. I know that because that's the official height and weight they put on me on the on the football program. I was so small, I was, you know, a second string and never really gotten in more more than four games. So that was when I was in the eighth grade. In the ninth grade, I was sick for part of the year. I went to a new school then in uh, my 10th grade. I thrived in school. I was in honors and uh, did quite well. We were taking a college prep course in those days. It was uh, two years of Latin, four years of science, four years of English four years of religion, four years of uh, math, and so on. So I did pretty well in all the subjects. And so um, senior year, I had uh, physics, ended up, I graduated on time in four years. My senior year, I was the manager of the basketball team. The basketball team was a very competitive team. They were number one in the state for most of the year, and they lost in the state championship. So that was my, my senior year. And in high school, but I wasn't, I was playing basketball all the time with CYU locally and other games, but I wasn't good enough to make the high school team because they were very good. So, but as the manager of the team, I got to work out a lot and learned a lot about the game and uh, the plays and that kind of thing. So that was my senior year in high school. That's fascinating and an interesting position. It's not something that we have here afforded to students, but that means they must have seen something in you to be the manager of the basketball team in your high well, school. Manager means a different thing. So let me just correct that. The manager it was the guy that took care of all the uniforms, uh, made sure everything was clean for practice, was making sure that everything was available uh, for the bus, for the away games. Uh, you took care of all the valuables. Uh, for the And uh, if there was any, uh, it's a lot of little menial things. For example, if there is any sweat on the floor, uh, any condensation from the rain outside and it was warm inside, the, war, the floor got very damp and uh, slippery. So the manager also went out with the towels and scrubbed the floor and uh, made sure that the floor was dry. So I wasn't the coach. 
And I wasn't uh, the club secretary. I wasn't arranging the schedule or the practices or anything. It was just a menial job as the as the manager. But you know, you needed a manager to keep the to get the uh, uniforms clean and dried and all that stuff. Absolutely, and you know, it's an integral part of the team. And and as you mentioned, you got to get exposed and learn about some various tactics and the infrastructure and the inner workings of how a team works. So. I have to ask that. Are you still a basketball fan today? Still a fan. Can't play much anymore. Used to have a basketball court in the backyard, and our, our kids all grew up playing the game. But I don't move around too much anymore. <laughs> understandable, understandable. John, you've had a fascinating upbringing. I, I, I'm just watching the arc, and I see there's like a fundamental determination and hard work, and you seem like a very organized guy. I'm very curious about how your life developed after high school. What Was university a thing that you went into? Did you get straight into work? Perhaps you could explain a little bit about the next step that you took following high school. Yeah, following high school, um, you know, at this time of year, or, or a little earlier, uh, most of the, most of the uh, students that are juniors and seniors in high school are applying to many colleges. They're looking around for the best education for the major they they choose will, you know, give them the best chance at acceptance into college and and on in into life. My mom um, said to me after I brought home an application from the high school, one of the uh, priests at the high school said, "John, take this application home, fill it out, and I, you know, discuss it with your parents, but you know, send it in." I was given the application, took it home, filled it out. I said, Mom, there's a problem with this thing. that They require a $40 application fee. And she said, well, you got the money. You've got a savings account. Now, the big part of that story is um, I was always reluctant to spend money. So I'm, I'm careful with my dollars. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, she said, I'll take you down to the bank. You can get a cashier's check. I didn't know what that was. And you can apply. You can attach it to the application. I said, "Oh, okay, mom." So uh, we went through that process, and a few weeks later, I was home. I don't know why I was home on a Saturday because normally every day was a work day. You know, you're either in school or you're working. So I was home that day, and the mail came, and mom said, "It's for you." And I looked at it, and I said, "Oh, it's an application. I've been accepted to the University of Santa Clara in California." I said, but I don't know if I'll go. And she said, of course you will. And that was it. I was I applied to one school. I was accepted. And I went and I went four years there, graduated, did quite well. Now, the adjunct to that, the follow-on, is there's compulsory military service in the United States at that time. So everybody was either going to be drafted or chose a service I was two years in Army ROTC. That's the reserve officer's training that they have in U.S. universities. I took Army ROTC, but the problem is I was so so focused on a schedule for life. I wanted to make sure that when I finished college, I had military service, and I could go to my graduate school, and I could go on to my career. I had a very scheduled kind of a life plan for myself. 
after two years, I uh, decided uh, Army, they had so many of these young officer candidates coming through that my service would be delayed at least two years. I found out that if I joined the Marines, I could uh, accept the commission immediately upon graduation. I could serve my time in the military and I could get on with my graduate training and so on. So I did. I took a commission in the United States Marine Corps, probably one of the best decisions I made because uh, that was a very structured and very disciplined life and uh, program. I um, got on with that. I was uh, very, very happy with uh, my period of service in the Marine Corps. Then I went on to graduate school. So uh, while I was in, still on active duty, uh, I was in uh, stationed in Japan, Okinawa, Philippines. When I, when I um, was discharged, I uh, had applied to uh, about 10 different colleges I looked at, and I applied a couple, three seriously, but I was accepted at UCLA, where uh, after a year and a half or two years, I got my MBA, Master's of Business Administration. And from there, my objective always is to travel a little bit. To uh, They call it a gap year now, but uh, it wasn't a gap year for me. It was uh, It was just a period of I traveled a little bit on active duty, and I wanted to continue uh, seeing a little bit more of the world before I settled down. I uh, traveled to Europe that summer, and uh, it was 1960 now. I went to um, all over Europe. I went from inside the Arctic Circle to North Africa, Tangier, from Narvik in Norway to Tangier, with stops all along the way, stayed with a family in Helsinki. I was all around the place. Uh, I had a Eurail pass that was very helpful. And uh, finally, the Eurail pass um, it was all used up by the time I got to um, Bari and Brindisi in Italy. Along the way, I was able to do a lot of different things, uh, one of which is I went to the Olympic Games in uh, Rome in 1960. That was a lot of fun and um, interesting. Got to see the opening ceremonies. I got to see. Uh, some of the great basketball players play for the U.S. Um, saw a game there. I saw wrestling, whatever it was. Whatever I saw was either free or gratis tickets somewhere along the way. I was tra traveling. I was spending less than $5 a day all over Europe that summer. So let's see. I took a boat from, from uh, Brindisi to uh, Athens, and I ended up traveling all through the Middle East. Greece, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon. I went to Iran, Pakistan, India. Traveled across India on the railroad. I got to Calcutta, though. I was kind of tired, and I'd lost a lot of weight. Because you can get sick a, a few times traveling the way I did. Then um, I got to Calcutta. Calcutta was is a place I'm sure it's much nicer now, but there, there were a lot of poor people. I'll tell you, it was so bad that Mother Teresa hadn't gotten there yet. I went from Calcutta. I, I bought an, an air ticket in a, a travel agency in Calcutta, and it, the guy I bought it from had been a classmate at UCLA when I got my MBA. That's how small the world was. So then I, um, I got down to uh, Rangoon and then on to Singapore. I went to Taiwan, Hong Kong. 
ended up in Japan. I got to Osaka. I was in Japan for, I don't know, two, three weeks, something like that. Then I went to Hawaii and I came home in November. So I went around the world in 180 days. Not 80 days, but 180 days. <laughs> I like to travel. I've been to many countries. Those countries were, you know, where you could, you get to Thailand, for example, you get to Bangkok and you want to see all the um, shrines. Then you just walk out in the country. You take the bus to the end of the bus line, you just walk out in the country. So I wore out a pair of shoes. When I got to Hong Kong, I bought a new pair of shoes. <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible, John. You know, you mentioned travel a few times before that question, and I was going to coax you on it, but you just went right ahead. And I can tell you're super passionate about that. I can see you have an adventurous spirit, and especially with some of the trips that you mentioned there. Any country or particular countries stand out for you as places that you, some of your favorite places you visited or just something that resonated with you out of all the places that you've been? No, I I really liked, I don't know how many countries it is uh, that I've been to. One of my grandsons asked me recently how many countries I've been to, and I, I told him 40. Like a few days later, I told him 50. I don't know, it's 56. Some of the countries have changed their names, as I mentioned. Burma's no, no longer Burma, it's Myanmar, and East Germany is no longer East Germany. And so I, I can't tell you exactly the number anymore, but I still like to travel. Now, the mo most recent trip that I could recall is that in 2004, I had some grandchildren by this time, and uh, Marge said, you can go on a trip. My wife said, as long as you're back, by the uh, grandchildren's birthday. I went to with my uh, golf clubs and a small bag, and I went to New Zealand. I played golf, uh, I think it was eight straight days in New Zealand, played in the North Island, played in the South Island. I met people along the way. Obviously, I, you don't play by yourself, and I had a wonderful time just playing golf and making new friends, so I can still do it. Oh, wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. And, and it's some journey, I guess, from all the parts of the world. I have to ask, being in so many places and across different time zones and, you know, different parts of your life, was there a memory of a particular famous historic event that you can remember that you experienced and it really stuck out for you? Well, let's see. A couple, three things come to mind. When I was in the Marine Corps on active duty, we had a guy in our platoon, in our squadron. He was in my duty section when I was a Marine Air Controller, and he went on to become very infamous. He actually murdered uh, President Kennedy. His name was uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, so that was one guy in my, in my platoon and then in my uh, squadron. And then an, another time when uh, we were visiting, um, we were on a a maneuver in the Philippines. Um, our squadron um, was set up on the island of Corregidor, which is a famous battle site in World War II. We had a visit from John Wayne, a famous movie actor, and he came and uh, spent some time with our squadron and uh, was very gracious, very nice guy. And he spent a lot of time with the enlisted men drinking beer with him. And he spent a lot of time with the officers and they, they were all uh, all over him telling him that he was the reason they joined the Marine Corps because he'd done those Marine Corps movies like 
Guadalcanal diary and things like that. So he was very gracious with us. Uh, I had some, I had a camera in my pocket and I took pictures of John Wayne. And there was one picture with Lee Harvey Oswald who was on mess duty in the background. And um, when they were doing a lot of um, background material on, uh, on Lee Harvey Oswald, I was interviewed a few times. And they um, they asked me for the pictures. I'd show them a lot, a lot of pictures of us when we were hitting the beaches and setting up things. I had pictures of Oswald. But I had the one picture with John Wayne and Oswald in the background. And I wouldn't release it unless John Wayne gave permission. Now, later on, I'm living here in the same house. And uh, I've got my children growing up. And it's, it's the 1970s. They kept asking me if they could have that picture. Um, this is um, probably Life Magazine or Reader's Digest, one of those. So finally, they asked John Wayne, who was dying at the UCLA hospital, if uh, he, they, he would release that picture. And he, he didn't know I had it. And so they told him 45 minutes after he said, okay, there was somebody at my house for that picture. And it was published. Wow. That is a fascinating story, John. Your life's a little bit like a movie. You're talking about uh, movie stars like John Wayne, but that experience and the overlap with what happened with Lee Harvey Oswald as well. I mean, this, I couldn't have, um, I asked the question wondering if you had a specific experience during a historic event, but I didn't realize that, you know, you were so intermeshed in two characters that very much are part of you know, the history and fabric of America in in some ways positive and in some ways negative. Incredible story, John. Really glad to hear that one. The tragic event that happened with the president, can you go through how perhaps you were feeling at that time, given that you had spent some time in active service duty with the man that was perpetrated to have assassinated President Kennedy? Like, what was going through your mind? Maybe tell a little bit about where you were and what you were going through. Um, it was Friday afternoon that President Kennedy was assassinated. Um, we were all, you know, shocked and saddened all, all weekend long. On, on Sunday morning, they um, had on television, they had um, the bringing of Lee Harvey Oswald from the, from the outside, moving from one part of the jail to another. And then they had the character Jack Ruby moving, um, you know, inside the Dallas Police Department. Jack Ruby, you know, is the one who then minutes later was had a pistol and shot uh, Oswald dead in the uh, in the basement of the uh, police department. So um, Marge and I are sitting there watching it on TV. We had a little black and white TV. We were just married. That was in 63, and we were married in 61. So we were living in a modest apartment in Santa Monica. And uh, Marge and the people I knew always thought I was an exaggerator. You know, I might say something, but it might not be 100% true. But that, I don't think that's fair at all. But that's nevertheless the reputation I had. I had. So I, um, I went to... Um, I collected only a few photos of my life. I had a, a shoebox full of photos. And, you know, I was talking about earlier how I'd taken pictures 
of the Marines on when we were on uh, in the Philippines and stuff. So I went to the shoebox and I pulled out pictures of Lee Harvey Oswald. Then uh, she believed me that I really did know that character. Wow. It wasn't long after that that the um, people from uh, Time Life magazine came and they wanted to um, interview me. They had, see, they'd gone back to Marine Corps headquarters and they'd found out the guys that were associated with Oswald when he was on active duty. They had a pretty good profile, a bio of him, not long after he he became infamous. So it wasn't that long that people came and asked uh, my impressions and opinions and if I had any pictures, and I did. I did not want to profit from President Kennedy's assassination, so I said, you can have these, uh, but I don't want to in any way to um, profit from that. But later on, they insisted that there be some small compensation. So I got $15 here and $20 there for some pictures that were published. Wow, just incredible, just incredible, John. I suppose that takes us on to, you know, you're serving your active duty. But as I understand, you had quite an illustrious and strong working career following all of that. Your son had mentioned that you joined quite a big tech firm that grew to become quite a big giant. Perhaps you could share a little bit about that, where you were working and what the first days of that were like. Yeah, here's a, uh, what happened. I came back from my trip around the world. Um, I wasn't married, but I was intending to get married. And so I, um, I proposed uh, soon after I returned. I um, interviewed a bunch of companies. I must have interviewed five, ten companies I need to get a job and get going. I had an MBA, so, you know, that was an advantage. And so I um, eventually uh, was hired by IBM, and I went to work for them in uh, February of uh, 1961. And I uh, ended up working for IBM for 30 and a half years. I retired in, uh, I think it was June 30th of uh, 1991. Now, along the way, I was a trainee in the beginning. I didn't know anything about this, but IBM trains you perfectly. They, um, the beginning of the business, when those days they just started doing big computers. And so they were still doing primarily their business was from the punch guard business. So I learned the punch guard part. Now, it wasn't just uh, keying it into a card. It was... Um, sorting it into some sequence and then putting it into an accounting machine where it tabulated and gave reports. And if it needed uh, some uh, other calculations, there was a calculator there for you. You put the punch cards in, the, punch, the calculations were punched in the cards, pull them out, put them in the accounting machine, list them again with new answers. Now you could use the punch card in a variety of ways. And this is the early part of my sales career. I went and called on customers, cold calls on customers to try to convert them from the manual methods of pencil, paper, and adding machines and to um, take the information that was in the punch card and use it over and over again. So if you punch that information in there for an invoice, you could use that information over and over again for a sales report or for uh, some um, collections and that kind of thing. So 
or you could use it for the statements that you mailed and on and on. You try to understand the customer's business and then you would adapt the uh, punch card method for that. Not long after that, though, I was transferred to a data center and I learned about the 1401 computer. That was the new, young, small computer. Customers could, could have one of these computers for as little as $3,000 a month. That's a lot of money. And you had, to, you had to find a lot of justification in the business to spend $3,000 a month on a computer. Because you still needed to punch the cards. Now, you could attach the tapes to the computer, and the tapes were great, but they still hadn't perfected the disk drives for the computer yet. And that took another couple years. When they announced the small disk drives on the next computer, which was the 1440, that computer could hold as much as 2,000 bytes, 2,000 characters. Can you imagine that removable disk drives could hold 2,000 characters? Now, they didn't really get to hold 2,000 characters either because you had to block the records and, you know, they're not all the records were the same size and you did that sort of thing. So it was a fixed record kind of thing with a lot of wasted space. So that was um, the 1401, my first computer, 1440, my second computer. But now I was launched into a computer career. I now had, uh, I didn't have um, the new accounts anymore. I had uh, medium-sized businesses. And um, then I started getting into different industries and selling computers to those industries. And eventually, um, I got bigger accounts. I eventually had um, some of the largest accounts on the West Coast. I had been a team leader for the UCLA account. The UCLA had so many of IBM's computers. We had 30 people on the campus that were just IBM employees. After that, I got promoted to become a sales instructor. I did that for a while. Then I had some time in uh, IBM staff work where we had litigation where a lot of companies were suing IBM for being a monopoly. And we beat those uh, all those allegations in court. I was there for that time in the 70s. Uh, now I was um, back out in the field again. I'd been a small account guy. I'd been a large account guy. Now, they wanted me to be a, sm a large account guy selling small systems. IBM invented some small computers by this time. The, th the System 3 series, the 32, the 34, 36, 38 computers were small computers that really weren't placed in big companies a lot because big companies had large computers and big, and big rooms like uh, I'd sell sold earlier. So I did that for a few years, and then I was promoted to the staff again now, and then on, and that was for large account activity, teach the people about that and to manage those staff activities. I was a, a manager. Uh, then uh, in um, Southern California and Orange County, then I was a manager in uh, in Western part of LA and Santa Monica. And I, eventually then they um, gave me a job. Now, I wasn't promoted from manager. I was demoted from manager. I'd reached my Peter principle by this time. And it's always hard to say you got demoted, but you know, I wasn't doing that job anymore. But they gave me the job of the um, team leader on a, a very large account. McDonnell Douglas had a very large presence in Southern California. In fact, it was the largest uh, account 
on the West Coast, and that included Boeing and all American Express, any other big account you can think of on the West Coast of the United States. But they, it was such a big account that it had a hangar with all the computers in it, and it had a second floor just for the disk drives. So McDonnell Douglas was had a very large presence. I was the the lead guy there for five years until I retired in 1991. Wow. That's a remarkable career, John. And I guess you must be immensely proud from the very humble beginnings and, you know, your cold calling, you know, small customers and all the way to these large accounts. It's a truly fascinating progression. Were you a little bit both fulfilled, but also a tiny bit sad when you, you hung up your boots, so to say, with respect to that position? No, it was time. I was uh, 56 years old. I had accomplished quite a bit. I'd gotten uh, sick at the end. Uh, it was time to pass on. To um, But I retired on um, like June 30th. And after the 4th of July weekend, I went to work for another company where I sold uh, small computers and services. That lasted about three months or so because now you know, I was picking and choosing my jobs. I I had been uh, with one company for a long time and hadn't didn't have to interview. Now I was with I was looking for one job and then another job. I ended up, I think I had four jobs in the next ten years. Um, I worked for um, a small company selling um, uh, uninterruptible power supplies and uh, and accessories, power strips and things. Then I worked for uh, another company selling software. I was nonstop software. You, you put this uh, software on two different computers. They would talk to each other and mirror each other, back each other up. That was interesting. Did that for a while. You know, that, that was the end of that one. That was my last job. And I okay. was a, a regional manager for the Midwest. I was on the plane a lot. I was, um, you know, headquartered here in Southern California, but all the customers were in the middle of the country. So I was on the plane a lot. I did that job for a year and a half or so. Um, then I I resigned again. And then uh, they came back and got me. They had some other things they wanted me to do. And I, I did some training of some people. And then I, I just started working part-time for them. And I stopped doing that when I was uh, 66. Wow. John, you've accomplished a heck of a lot in your life, whether it was in your professional career or, you know, exploring the world. I have to ask, like, is there anything you wish that you could have done or perhaps any unfulfilled ambitions that maybe you didn't get a chance to do? No, I don't think so. I uh, It was pretty clear I wasn't going to be president of IBM. And... Uh, <laughs> I figured that out the first weeks when I was trying to get those punch cards uh, and calculators and accounting machines to work. Um, <laughs> I was pretty well fulfilled. The best part, I think, was the fact that I was recognized as a, a talent, and IBM invested an awful lot in me in the ed additional education. So along the way, and when I was a salesman or I was on the staff, they um, would send me to additional training. The first, the first one I went to was uh, a two-week course uh, with Harvard professors, and they used the case study method. I got the feeling for advanced graduate training in business. I had an MBA. I had 
a lot of time in the business by the time I probably had 15 years or so. And that helped me as a, as a businessman to understand the customer better. Uh, and I think then a couple of years later, I was given an additional week of uh, training with Harvard professors again at, uh, in the Boston area. And that um, further solidified my, my talents as a, and developed my talent as a, as a business professional. The, the part that I always tried to teach when I was a manager and when I was um, an instructor was, was not just selling computers, but you're selling solutions. And so when you're selling solutions, you have to put yourself in the place of the business that you're talking to. And I felt that if you're selling medium and small businesses, you had to be talking to the president and the decision maker along the way, gathering support from the uh, people that were going to be running the business at the operational level. The uh, part that was very difficult to do was to take a young person just out of college and in, in, in just finished the IBM training program and to get them to sell solutions, to understand the customer's business and go in and talk to the uh, principal like they were an equal and to get them to have that confidence that they were an equal and they could talk to the customer about their business. When I was able to finally learn to do that as a, a more mature person, I was extremely successful. I had conversations with the people, the top people in businesses in California. Probably the highest guy I ever talked to is John McDonald at McDonald Douglas, who was running a, a vast company of locations around North America. Uh, he was extremely accessible for me. But I did talk to a lot of presidents of divisions, having them understand what the technology of the day was. Many of them had come up in their operationally in their business and succeeded, but they had no idea what technology was. They did not believe that they needed to secure their data. They didn't believe that they had to administer their data and manage manage the people in the tech part of their business. They just said, well, if we give that to the finance guy, he's got to run it. That's not the way it was. That's way, not the way it should be. They should be managing their chief information officer, promoting the people to that, uh, that status, that level, and treating them like any other vice president in their business. Very hard sell. That was the kind of selling I was doing at the end. It wasn't a technology sell, and it wasn't a solution sell. It was an organizational sell. Wow. I mean, John, even in this short call, I feel it's been tremendously insightful with some of the experience that you garnered, you know, from practical exposure in the work that you did. Now, as I understand that you have uh, children and both grandchildren, if you were to pass on some of that insight to your grandchildren or give them maybe, you know, one or two tips that would serve them well in life, professionally and personally, what would you say to them? First of all, treat your family and your friends and have faith. Also, treat the least person that you run into like they're the most important person. Again, I focus on education and I focus on uh, family, friends, and faith. Then there's always the hard work. It's uh, easy to assume you're going to be successful. And you should always believe and be confident that you're going to be successful. But you should also be willing to do the hard work. Uh, get up early, 
and stay late. I can just uh, recall a few little things. Um, when I was a manager in uh, Orange County here in California, I would um, try to beat the traffic and get to work. Or if I was um, had customers in different time zones, I'd get up earlier and uh, make the phone calls. If I had a Monday morning appointment in Chicago, I didn't wait and get on the plane on Monday morning. I got there on Sunday night. That meant that there was no there was no Sunday. That was Sunday morning on the plane, Sunday night in a hotel, and Sunday morning and Monday morning bright and early in the customer's office with a white shirt, a suit, a tie, and a smile. Those are great values to live by, John. Is there something that perhaps you want to share, or maybe we've missed? You've lived a very colorful and illustrious life, and I would hate to miss any of these nuggets. Anything perhaps you'd like to share? I met my wife before I took my trip around the world. Uh, I married her when I came back. I lived uh, 62 years with her. That's touching. That's incredible. She's responsible for our children's success and uh, and for my happiness. Uh, appreciate her. That's beautiful to hear, John. And, you know, you're a very special guy, and I'm sure she was a very special partner for you throughout that period. And you reflect that wonderfully, and I'm glad you shared that as part of this call. So, John, when I met you, I knew you as Joe's father. However, following this conversation today, which I've been very fortunate to ask what I learned about you, what is an incredibly resilient, organized, hardworking man who has a free, adventurous spirit and doesn't let hard work and business get in the way, still respects things that matter to you most in life, family, friends, faith, very strong moral values. You've been an absolute delight to interview. I'm honored to have, have had the chance to meet you. I still believe you're a, a traveler at heart and a golfer. So if you ever do come past Ireland, it would be great to shake your hand, sir. Again, just like to thank you for this interview and hope you had a nice time here at Audio Life. Thanks very much, Gifford. Uh, I've enjoyed talking with you and sharing my life experiences. Good luck to you. All the best. 